So we'll start with Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, this is a uh, fairly famous passage where Paul confronts um, different worldviews at Mars Hill. I think it actually provides a pretty good roadmap for answering the question that we're answering today. How do you deal, answer, and do youth ministry in a postmodern culture? So just for definitions, like when we say postmodern culture, what we essentially mean is that modernity brought the idea um, of everything being able to be figured out, and postmodernity brought the idea that everyone's truth is relative to themselves. So it's essentially the idea, uh, how do you, the, the gospel's, presents itself as being the source of absolute truth, and how do you do that in a society where everyone believes there is no absolute truth? It's very confusing. It's confounding, and it's difficult to deal with. I do think there are really good strategies that we can come from when it comes to youth ministry in this, but uh, sometimes it's, it's having to uh, adjust and shift the way that we actually do ministry a little bit, especially in terms of teaching and communication. So uh, here we go. Paul at Mars Hill. We'll begin in verse, I don't know. Um, yeah, we'll go from here. Verse 17. 16, why not? While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Okay, this is, uh, this is us. City's full of idols. So he reasoned, okay, Paul's a reasoning man. He calls us to reason, love Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the differentiation between the Old Testament Shema and the New Testament reiteration of the Shema? Does anyone know? The Old Testament Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the, God, lo, lo, love the Lord your God with all of your what? Heart, soul, and strength. Jesus adds something in the New Testament. What's he add? Mind. Okay. <laughs> Mainly because in the Old Testament, the lev, or the, the, the root of the heart, would have absolutely denoted the idea of the mind, right? They thought with their heart, that was the idea. Um, your, your motive, your intuitional mode, your volition came from your heart, right? Uh, which even today makes sense. If someone says, follow your heart, um, your heart does nothing, right? Your heart's actually not that part of your body that you would ever follow, even for emotional things, the reason we say the heart is because if we've ever experienced love, sickness, or loss, a lot of times it actually ruminates in your chest. So we say, I'm heart sick, but in reality, every pain that we feel comes from our brain. Our, pain is, our, our, our brain is our pain center, our brain is our love center, our brain is our emotional center. So in the Old Testament, the idea of the heart would have denoted the mind. In the New Testament, Jesus clarifies it by adding the mind in there for a Greek audience, which is him condescending to his people. So he reasoned the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, uh, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious. This is step one. I really think to, to reach a postmodern culture, you, 
the, the, the way that we're teaching our homiletics, um, our pedagogy even, we can't assume anything anymore, okay? So when you walk in and you go, um, if you're standing in front of your students, I'm teaching at Skyline Church in San Diego this weekend, okay? And so I'm teaching on, I'm talking about faith, okay? And faith, I, you, you can no longer say, guys, we need to have Abraham-like faith, right? How come? They don't know who Abraham is. I would bet for a lot of our students, if I said, why would we use Abraham as a measure of faithfulness? I would, uh, if we played the over-under game, I would put the over-under about 50-50. About half of our students would be able to articulate why we consider Abraham a man of faith. Particularly the testing of Abraham, Genesis 22, the sacrifice of his son Isaac, right? A lot of, uh, a lot of our students wouldn't know that. So I, I think first and foremost, just as kind of a, a side rule of thumb, assume nothing anymore, okay? It, like any conversation about the transubstantial, transubstantiation versus consubstantiation versus Wingleian real presence versus whatever is completely irrelevant to this culture when it comes to communion. They don't know what communion is. So the separation of churches almost doesn't have, it doesn't almost have to do with doctrine either. Generation Z, that's every, all of our youth groups are full of Gen Z. We spent time and money figuring out how to reach the millennial generation only to wake up and realize they're all gone. <laughs> you're them, right? Like if you're, I'm them. We're not really trying to reach them in youth ministry. It's all about Gen Z. And Gen Z doesn't give a rip about your tribe. They don't care, right? That's why churches are, are going as fast as they can to get rid of their, in a lot of cases, get rid of the things that define them because uh, students don't care. They're not brand loyal, right? When, think about, just think two generations ago, three generations ago. I think every generation is a direct response to the one before it, okay? So you had the World War II uh, baby boomer generation. Mom and dad get home. Let's have babies. The world is ours to conquer. We lost a lot of people in the war. Everything's looking up. We've conquered the world. You can buy a house for $13. You can start a business. You'll be the only one in town who does that particular business. We have this inkling of this technological revolution that's coming in, even though it hasn't seen its fulfillment yet. There's nothing but potential, right? The marketplace is wide open. My grandfather died a multimillionaire because he bid a bricklaying job when he was 13 years old, having no idea how to build bricks. He just said, oh, I'll do that for uh, $100 less than the lowest bid. And he learned how to bricklay, and he became a mason, and Arnie Jensen Masonry now still exists in Rochester, Minnesota, as one of the key foundational builders in the whole area. That's, you can't do that. Like, you, that's... And that's one of the things that I think it's even been difficult generationally is oftentimes the, the, the older generation, the baby boomers and beyond, tell Gen Z, get off your butt and do something. And you're like, listen, friend, you're asking me to, this, we're talking about two very different things. And we watch them engaging on social media and making TikTok videos and selling essential oils. And they're trying to make their footprint in the marketplace. They don't know what else to do. If they start a business, someone else in town, there's already eight people in that area doing something that have much more experience and it's become very difficult. So when you think Gen Z, think pessimists. They are pessimistic, right? 
Um, when, they, when they hear an older person say, you can do anything you set your mind to, or if you work at it hard enough, you can achieve the American dream, the typical response from Gen Z is, okay, boomer, right? Like, okay, for sure. Yeah, that might have been your experience, but things are different now. Um, they, don't, they don't really have an optimistic look at things. So this understanding Gen Z is extremely important in the way that they think. They are technological natives. They were born with a phone in their hand. All of them were, right? I remember when the internet first came out and everyone was like, when is this internet fad gonna get out of here, you know? Where you couldn't be on the phone at your house and also have someone on the internet at the same time. Because then they would, my mom would be like, get off the internet! Because she's like talking to her sister and then all of a sudden it'd be like, bee dee dee, don't on some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, but it was a game we played. Uh, it was our symbiotic relationship for a season there. But they don't have it. They're pessimistic. They, um, what they consider to be good and what a lot of other generations consider to be good are two different things. Uh, what they consider to be beneficial. So think about, you got the baby boomer generation. The churches that they built look like what? What are some of the characteristics of baby boomer built churches? This is absolutely, every generation has carried the pillar of faith in an amazing way. This is not a question of that. This is a youth conference though. So we're talking about how to reach Gen Z and oftentimes to do it, we need to make comparisons. I think baby boomers are to be praised for their faithfulness and everything as our X, as our Y, as our, as our Gen Z. But this is our comparison. Yeah. Big, big. Okay, so everything was big. It, it's the... Um, the Crystal Cathedral, it was ornate. Did you ever go to like Trinity Broadcasting Network's studios? It was like gold-laced everything, right? And every generation, what their people prize the most tends to be what sticks the best with their teaching. It tends to be what their churches look like. And then the opposite of that or the antithesis of that tends to be the forgotten doctrine of that generation. Think about that. So if everyone's coming home, everyone's, everyone's wealthy and, and you are going to church now and you want to bring in some morals into it, right? You're, you're not really using church for um, strict community reasons. You've got your own community. You've got your job. You work 70 hours a week. Your kids, your Gen X and millennial kids are latchkey kids. They're raising themselves because you're at work for 60 hours a week. What kind of buildings do you build? You've got money on money, so you build them ornate and you build them big and you try then to proselytize the people by saying, look at how big this building is. Look how ornate our God is. Look how plentiful his supply. Look how resourceful his church. And it worked. And baby boomers did a great job carrying that. But then what happened? The next generation who felt forgotten by their parents because they were working so often wanted someone to go, someone pay attention to me. Someone look at me. Someone care what I do. So the millennials were brought up, taking pictures of their food and posting it on social media and everyone giving them likes, right? They were affirmed. They were like, well, you didn't affirm me. Someone's got to affirm me. And so everything we do is special. And because my dad was never home, now I'm going to give you a trophy for eighth place. And, and while that, that is a, it's a cultural criticism, it also seeps into the church then. And what you're going to find is that the millennial generation, their forgotten doctrine is the doctrine of wrath. The forgotten doctrine of, of the millennial generation is the doctrine of justice, of personal responsibility in a lot of these things, of sanctification, of holiness in these aspects. 
So it, it, think about it this way. When baby boomers were buying clothes for their teenage kids growing up, the most popular stores were Abercrombie and & Fitch and Hollister, where you bought a shirt that a kid made in Taiwan for 13 cents and you sold it for $130. And you, you wanted to make sure that people saw it. So it was big A&F for Abercrombie & Fitch. It was big bird for Hollister. You wanted people to know your logo because you wanted them to know that you spent a lot of money on it because it demonstrated that you had money to blow, Right? When I was nine, 10 years old, poor people went to Goodwill, right? And I, I used to, I remember getting into high school and we would have like spirit dress up days, like dress like a grandma day. And I'd be like, mom, I'm going to Goodwill. She's like, no, we'll, we'll, we'll go somewhere else. Like you don't need to go. It's like, it was like, I was going to get lost in Narnia. She like, didn't want me to go there. Like I was going to get involved in some kind of drug deal in the junior section because you don't go there, Right? We've got money. Let's go to this place. Let's do what we can afford. Let's go get your Hollister clothes. I got a gift card from my grandmother for Hollister, $50 gift card from her every year for like 12 years. And I just kept forgetting to tell her I don't shop there anymore. So if any of you are looking for shoes or whatever, do they have shoes? I don't know. But I've got some gift cards I'm willing to give to you. Um, because in the next generation, they watch their parents do that and they realize, man, I can, A, I don't have the same kind of opportunity that I feel like you've had. Uh, B, this isn't working well for you. You're getting divorced at a rate of about 55% of the population is getting divorced. Uh, So it's not really helping your marriage. You've kind of forgotten me as a kid. We don't get along super well. And uh, what I care about, you don't really care about. What you care about, I don't really care about. And so then there's this move away from it. And, And a pendulum never stops in the middle, does it? It swings back to the direction. So were there faults in the baby boomer generation? For sure. But then, instead of stopping in the middle, we went over here to now we've got millennials who are doing crazy stuff. Everyone's affirmed for everything. Truth is not really truth. There's no objective morality, whatever. And then here comes Gen Z. Gen Z comes in the picture, and they've watched this battle royale between the boomers and millennials. And everyone's miserable. (laughs) The number one question that baby boomers were asking is what does success look like? Even the church. What, in what ways can God supplement the things in my life that I lack? Where can he be the compliments that I need, that I don't have? I bring something to the table, but I want the rest of my life filled in. I need some type of spirituality because I know it's a good thing. I, I need some basis for morality for my kids. Let's fill those things in. The millennial generation came in and instead asks a question about authenticity. What makes you unique? What makes this unique? What, 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 how am I able to express myself through this means? Uh, in, in what ways can I, as a Christian, demonstrate myself? It's, a, it's all about self-expression. This is a, a guy named uh, Leslie Newbegin wrote a book uh, called Foolishness to the Greeks. He's a cultural commentator. He's a Christian. And he talks about the, the millennial generation is full of expressive, individualistic, people. So I, I want you to know that I'm un, that I am a unique thumbprint on planet Earth and I and the burden that's placed on millennials is to be unique. Do you know how hard that is? We think it's easy because everyone's unique, but in reality we all kind of create this monolithic human experience and then we rebel against it because everyone's telling us to be unique, right? Like when Lady Gaga says, go be yourself, go be unique, it's like we almost die trying to be unique. And so instead of, right, like how many 
news stations were there 50 years ago? Three. And if I asked you, who were the anchors of the evening news programs 50 years ago, who were they? Help me out. You want to know? Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it was. Who else? Dan Rather. Dan Rather. Good. All right. Someone, anyone under the age of 25, name an evening news anchor on national television. Yeah, you can't because where do you get where do you get your news from? Other people, where do they, where do you get your news from? Online that you find when you what search for news articles or what? How does it pop up? Every now and then you search things. <laughs> where do you get it? reality yeah i follow like four instagram accounts that give me the news like i want to try to find the most unbiased people and i try to and they it scrolls my news feed i'm like oh you had a kid that's great oh the pipeline shut down you know like this is how i find out information and so we gen z is there they don't trust anyone they don't trust you they don't trust the news they don't trust anything. Like, they don't have conspiracy theories. They laugh at people who so-called conspiracy theories. They're just going, this is just the way it is. If you don't know that you're being fooled every which way. But what they've done then is instead of engaging on that level, they've just pulled back and been like, as long as my sphere is good, we're good. And I know you're stealing from my parents, taxations, a crime, like all this. They're doing, I don't, whatever, I don't care. Just let me be here. I just want to be in my space right here. So what does that mean when it comes to youth ministry? Okay, if, if we prized so highly back then, the Hollisters and the Abercrombie and Fitches, I, I remember being, uh, I was teaching, I was at Hume Lake. I was teaching here at Hume Lake with my students. This is when I was bringing students up for winter camp. And we were over in Cedar Chapel after um, one of the programs one night. They were confused. Some, something happened in program. Oh, I know what it is. The guy had an illustration about the Holy Spirit being inside of us. Do you guys remember this? Were you here for this? And so he gets up on stage and he puts a soda can on stage and he goes to stand on it. And the whole point is now that the Holy Spirit's inside of us, we don't, I don't remember exactly why he said it, but the whole point was he stood on an empty soda can and it crushed. And then he filled the soda can up with sand and stood on it and it blew up. And it was supposed to obviously hold him and he was going to make his whole point based on that. And it didn't work. And then he had an altar call, and all of my students got saved. And I went, nope, nope, this is not it. Nope, this is not right. <laughs> like, my wife stood up. I'm like, nope, nope, you're, you're saved. Stop. Because it was, it was, it, I think it just rattled him. So I'm teaching over in Cedar Chapel. And like the only thermal I had was a Hollister thermal. And I took my jacket off in that, and I just got absolutely raised, roused, and made fun of by every single student. Are you wearing Hollister right now? I'm like, yeah. Why? What? What? I'm like, oh, no, cool. That's awesome. How much did you spend on your shirt? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You're like, they were just like, they wouldn't leave me alone. And, and for them, it flip-flopped, right? When I walk into church and I'm wearing some 50-year-old's 
formal, former flannel that I picked out of an estate sale because he passed away. They're like, dope, that's dope. And when I wear also, they're like, that's so dumb. And so it's a reflection kind of of their, their cultural moment, which is we don't trust your big business. We don't trust your brand names. We don't trust any of that stuff. We go to Goodwill. We buy things in thrift. We spend less money. We have wanderlust. We travel around. That's what we want. We want to see the world, right? Beauty and nature doesn't lie to us, okay? When I go see uh, Yosemite National Park, I don't need to take anyone's word for it. I get to see it myself. And so what, what they want is they, even when it comes to teaching, especially there's a weird duality then because they don't trust what you're saying. They need to experience it for themselves. But they're also the most apt to be asking really difficult questions about life, reality, sexuality, relationships, and all those things. And they're postmodern, right? When I was a first youth pastor, Back in 2011, students would actually lie to you about sleeping with their girlfriend. They don't even lie to you anymore. They walk up to you, they let you know exactly what's going on, and then they just kind of ask, is there something wrong with this? They don't know, okay? And so our response in those moments is really important, and the, the key thing, I think the number one thing if you walk away with nothing else, especially if you if you assume any kind of teaching role, that means teaching on a stage, that means teaching in small groups, that means teaching in one-on-one, in -on -one, whatever it is. We have to teach them how to think. Don't just tell them what to think. We gotta teach them how to think. Why? Because if they don't arrive at the conclusion that fornication is wrong on their own by being guided through a process of seeing the text themselves, if you walk up and you go like this, guys, you know that premarital sex is wrong, What's their response going to be internally? No, we don't. We don't know that. And we're so used to people just preaching that at us that we truly don't even know where you're getting that from. And you say that, but this church over here says something very different. You say that, but Jay-Z claims he's a Christian. And he doesn't even have any problems with it. So if he's a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, then your form of Christianity must just be ones a little more fundamentalist than the ones that I'm more comfortable with. So they end up doing what they think is appropriate because they see so many denominations. They go, oh, you must be a denomination who thinks this. So in order for us to make a case for or against anything, biblically speaking, to call people to holiness, we have to hold their hand through the whole process. So if I want to talk to a, a, a group of students about homosexuality, I have to start in Genesis. This is how God created mankind. This is the first institution we see of marriage. This is where we've seen it messed up, culturally speaking. This is what we talk about when we talk about the depravity of mankind. This is what we mean when we say that the spirit wants to contrary to the flesh and the flesh is contrary to the spirit. Here's what we mean when Romans 1 says they, they, the, 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 full, um, the full giving over of depravity was that they exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And, and then you have to go, because they've watched every TikTok video on homosexuality in the Bible that, that you could think of. And so if you're, if, especially if you're starting to teach controversial topics, I would do so through the means of studying debates. Study debates. You don't need to just know what the Bible says. You need to know what their friends are telling them is not true about what you're saying. Because they won't even talk to you about it because they don't trust you. It's like, it's like I talk into the abyss every week when I go. And if you guys have any questions, I'll be hanging out here afterwards if you want to hang out. 
They'll come and hang out because they want to know that you're authentic, but they don't really want to bring their questions to you because they're just not pot convinced you're going to tell them the truth. This is also why I think as a buffet, as a general rule of thumb, we should have um, consistent teachers in our youth groups or people that they know as much as we can because you establish trust with them. Hume Lake's amazing. And every time you come to Hume Lake, what you find out is if I'm ever teaching at Hume Lake, I could tell if someone's coming in for the first time and they've never been to a youth camp before that I'm teaching at, I just, I'll tell them, watch this. Day one, they'll have no clue who I am and they won't care. Day two, you'll just watch them go like this when they walk by you, which is them saying, you're the guy from the stage. But if you don't con consistently continue to dive into God's word to show your vulnerability and where you're struggling in your own Christian walk and you're creating buy-in with them and honesty with them and reciprocity with them, then by day four, they're like, dude, what's up, man? Hey, great stuff, man. That was awesome. Thanks so much. By the last day, they're, they're like all your best friend. And you're like, who are you people? I've been here all week. And then like 20 minutes before you leave, they're like, that was the best. That was awesome. Because they're sniffing you out, man. They want to know. I see what you're smelling. I see what you're smoking. I see what you're selling, but are you smoking it? That's what they want to know. You're selling this Bible thing, but do you smoke it yourself? It's a weird way of putting it, but it helps for Gen Z. <laughs> I see what you're selling, but are you smoking it, right? My mom was a uh, pot user a lot, and so she used to always, this is, this is her analogy. She said, every time I went to go buy weed from someone, I would always have them smoke it first. So I knew it was legit. I'll buy it if you're willing to smoke it. I don't know that that's the best analogy for a youth pastor's retreat, but like, <laughs> I learned it 20 years ago and I never forgotten, so I guess it did work. Um, so we want to be really uh, responsive and receptive to those things. How do we establish credibility? Okay, that's a question. It's both rhetorical and non-rhetorical. How do you establish credibility? Let me ask you a question. Um, what's a brand that you trust a lot? I'm throwing out there. What's a brand that you really trust? Kirkland. I love it. Don't we? We love Kirkland. Why? Value. What else? Variety. Okay, what else? Freaking return policy. Right? I am presently wearing a pair of Kirkland socks that I bought that I thought, you know what, these are not, these are not gonna fall off my heel when I start walking around. But guess what they're doing? Falling off my heel. Guess what I'm gonna do when I get back into town? I'm gonna return them. And guess what Kirkland's gonna do? They're gonna take them back. So I walk down the aisles and I'm like, yeah, put it in my cart, put it in my cart. I'll even sometimes keep things because I feel so bad about all the stuff that I've returned that I'm like, that's fine. I'll just keep this one, right? I learned not that long ago that like the, the vodka they sell is Grey Goose Vodka. The same exact one. They sell them next to each other and one's $10 a bottle less expensive than the other one. It's, and they don't broadcast it and that's part of the reason we trust them. You gotta search and find the, the fact that they're helping you out. Do you know how much money they lose on milkshakes, hot dogs, and drinks every year? Tens of millions of dollars. Do you know how much money they lose on chicken every year? Five million dollars. They're called loss leaders. It's reciprocity. They're saying, you're going to take advantage of us chicken-wise. But my hope is you spend money on other stuff because you're, you trust us. And we do. We're like, I mean, I buy chicken from them as if it was going out of style. That's all I eat. That's all I eat. I eat chicken 
for two meals every day, and I have for the last year, ever since Paige died. I eat chicken and vegetables for every meal. Up here, you got to shift a little bit. But I'm one of those, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, guys. And I'm a widowed single father of five, so I just do what works. And so I buy their chicken, and I love Costco. And one of my favorite things is a return policy. They've established trust with me through that. And they, it, they show me stuff, right? If you know what to look for on the price tag, you know, is this product going to be here next week? Is it not? They let you know all that stuff. They also, they also use scarcity factor. They tell you, this one, this is our last pallet of this, then it's going out. Oh, I better buy all the rest of it, right? They have this like primal kitchen buffalo chicken sauce, buffalo sauce, you guys. But it's like seasonal, it's like the McRib. You know the McRib and the Shamrock Shake are the two highest producing things at Walmart or at McDonald's every year? You're not gonna convince me they're the most delicious things at McDonald's. But it's scarcity. There was a, um, a fish shop in Morro Bay and they started putting on the menu um, a, a denotation next to the fish based on how plentiful they were in the wild so that you could order fish that were uh, the most available to be resourced. So tilapia had like a green bubble next to it. We got tilapia for days. Don't worry about tilapia. Order tilapia. We got plenty of tilapia. It'd be like Asian swordfish would have like this red one, like very few left, um, very endangered. Guess what happened? Everyone bought the swordfish. <laughs> because while they love fish, they also love fish, you know? <laughs> I love fish, but I also love fish. They're delicious. We love scarcity. We love that idea. Okay, so we establish credibility in branding by doing some of those things. We, uh, one of the ways that we, wanted that we do that, um, think about, you guys remember the old slogan for Avis Rent-A-Car? They were getting beat to a pulp by Enterprise, and they came up with a new slogan, and it was, we're number two, but we try harder. What'd you just do? I love that face. That's what I do too. I go, yeah. Right? They don't go, we're better than Enterprise. They're like, we're not better, but we try harder. Right? Uh, have you guys watched The Office? Yeah. yeah. What is the selling point to not go to Staples from Dunder Mifflin? Customer service. Customer service. I, I can't compete with the big brand names, but Here's what it's like when you call customer service. Hello, customer service is Kelly. Oh my God, Jim, I love you. And then he hangs up. Yes. So you establish credibility by a lot of times in brands and in companies by leading with your weakness. Okay. You guys remember Wells Fargo a couple years back, their new campaign? They did this. They spent $2 million on a campaign that said, we have lost your trust. We used to be about people. And then we, we, we brought in a whole system where we were all about the bottom line and we were built on trust and we lost it and we'd love to get it back. Now, I'm, I'm like a Chase Bank guy just because they're so handy, but I had a moment where I was like, dang it, Wells Fargo, I want to give you a shot, you know? Because I like it. You're telling me what you're messing up with. I'm good with that. Every time Amazon has an order of mine that, that comes late, they send me an email, they go, so sorry. You want to know the truth, man? I wouldn't have remembered when it was supposed to come. I get stuff from you every single day. Diapers, wipes, binkies, bottles, shoes, socks. Um, I, but then they still, they still apologize for it. But hey, we got a tracking on it. We're gonna get to you right away. So Amazon, chill. You guys use wizardry. You bring me stuff in like 14 hours sometimes. Cut yourself a break, right? So you lead with that. So how do we learn that? 
How do we learn to do the same things in our teaching? How do we learn to do the same things in our youth groups? How do we do that when we're, when we're having conversations and we're talking about difficult things? Particularly with people who are postmodernistic. We, we lead with the difficult stuff. You don't hide it, you don't shy away from it, and you walk them through that process. Remember, they probably don't trust you. Which is also why life groups and small groups are so important. And if you're a youth pastor, if you're not spending the majority of your time pouring into your life group leaders, you're missing it because they're the ones that your students are listening to, not you. <laughs> They'll let you be the big talking head on the stage on Sunday, but the people who are gonna get to pour into their life and, and transform it are gonna be the ones on the ground level because they know, they've watched them behave. That means for a lot of us, establishing credibility means apologizing to our students when we do something wrong, when we make a mistake. It, it means when we tell stories that we're not the hero of those stories. That's really important too. That we don't tell stories where at the end I could say, so if, you, if you're watching me closely, you'll know exactly what it means to follow God because I'm following him so closely, right? We are not the, don't be the hero of your own story. Talk about your, your, the problems that you're going, again, I think Sarah said it well, an appropriate level right? You can't sit there and be like, you guys have no clue how much I lust all the time. Like last week at camp, when you guys were walking around, I couldn't possibly, it's like, well, that's not helpful. That's confused everyone. And now no one's even listening to what you're talking about. There's a level of appropriateness though, where, you, where I, I think historically um, the idea of a wounded pastor or idea of a, a pastor that walks with a limp was so foreign to the church that pastors presented this kind of bravado and this aficionado of like, I have my life together, okay? Um, you have heard it say, but I tell, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And they come from a position of, of expertise. And oftentimes what's happened then is those pastors have been unwilling to pass the baton of leadership next, off to the next generation because they're watching them and they're going, you haven't figured it out yet. But what you haven't figured out is the facade, but that's not what this generation is gonna work. It's not how it's gonna work. The idea is, well, once you've made all your mistakes here, then when you're finally perfectly sanctified, we'll put you in a position of leadership. And it's like, bro, the disciples were like 15, you know, 16. And honestly, if you look at the leaders of the last generation church, how well has it been going? Bill Hybels, Mark Driscoll. I'm not trying to like step on anyone's anything, but like Mark Driscoll came to our church the day after he got fired. He was sitting in a meeting that I was in. I was doing sermon prep for that weekend and he sat there and he sat in my sermon prep. So I told him what I was gonna be teaching about and he sat and stared at me the whole time I was talking. It's horribly intimidating. Horribly intimidating, right? But then you get that moment, you're like, I have a job and you don't have a job. You know, like you're so much smarter than me and you're so much, you're such a better communicator of ideas and you're so much more creative, and you're so much well, more well-known, and you've written all these books and everything, but I've got a job and you don't, right? Why? Because the next generation that comes up is poking holes. They're not just taking that face value, and the preponderance of social media means that if we lead by going, if you search in my life, you're gonna figure out I'm messed up. If you really pry my life, what you're gonna realize is I am a broken man in need of a savior, but dang it, I am trying and I am searching after him. Do you want to come on this journey with me? That invitation is so much more appealing to this generation than you poor depraved souls. I can't wait till you get to the position that I'm in where I have life figured out. 
it's failed to capture the imagination of Gen Z. That idea has. And so we want to be able to do that better. So they value goodwill. They value things that are trustworthy. You want to know something? Bananas? This is crazy. I went to a church a couple weeks back. I was like the oldest person there. Which is weird. I'm like 33, but I was like the oldest person there. And they finished by closing out the worship set with an a cappella rendition of Holy, Holy, Holy. It was powerful. And these people that were younger than me were singing at the top of their lungs. And I was asking them afterwards, and they used the word tradition because tradition was trustworthy to them. Oh no, they've been singing this song for hundreds of years, so we trust it. We think that it's true. It's been working and it's effective. So a lot of, it's, it's kind of what Timothy talks about. A lot of the newer ideas are kind of here today and then gone tomorrow, right? Um, if you do the statistics in the church, is the church in America shrinking or growing? It's growing. The, 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 the baptized, universal, invisible church of Christ is growing. The people sitting in pews who have never been taught the difference between being a goat and a sheep are slowly moving away from the church because it's becoming more difficult and it's becoming a lot less popular to be a Christian. But the number of Bible-believing people who believe that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God is growing. They're not actually falling away. The progressive movement that was really popular these last 20 and 30 years, that's dying off. So when you look at the statistics, it's the people who weren't actually following Jesus in the first place have walked away from it, but it hasn't really affected the, the invisible church of Jesus. That is still growing. And, and here's what we have to understand. The reason that students are in our youth groups is because they've tasted what the world has to offer and found it wanting. Which means that if we just keep serving them a little less hip version of what they can get on TikTok and social media and in culture and at parties, we're going to fail to capture them. Because, like, it's what's crazy to me, what's difficult, I think, for a lot of us is... Um, when I, when, I mean, when I first started youth ministry, we would like make videos. I would like be in a video and we'd be promoting an event and the kids would be like, you're on the screen. In order to do that, you, you had to have a camera that worked. You had to know how to upload that video. You had to know how to at least use iMovie. You had to know how to, to put background um, music in it. You had to know how to create those things. You had to do, uh, put a filter on it for a Western theme. Everyone's like, whoa. They can do that now by themselves in 13 seconds. Better, faster, and more eloquently than you can. How do you compete with that? You don't. You want to know what was crazy about this summer teaching at Hume Lake? I think the idea of hard truth was so novel for these students that for a lot of them, it was better than a lot of the other stuff that was happening at camp. It was almost masochistic. They would come in and go, tell me it again. You're not gonna make it. This is the truth of the gospel. God is great. He's in his perfection and you're not perfect. They're like, yes, keep going, right? Like they're just so used to being pandered and the, the fluff. And at least they're, they're thinking like, at least give me the facts so I can make a decision. They want it. They crave it. They seek it. Which is why a Barna research study said, if you study one thing right now as a youth pastor, learn the field of apologetics. If you learn one thing, learn the field of apologetics. That's 
That's not for your senior pastors, unless they're trying to reach Gen Z. Every generation is going to have a different thing. But for us, the, the, one of the saddest questions that I just, uh, I, was, I was just reading the Barna research study about Gen Z. And it says, their number one question wasn't, what makes my life better? Or what makes my life unique? The number one question was, what makes my life worth living? Why should I even stay here? And so they've wrapped up the answer to that question in the niceties and the trinkets and the trappings and the wanderlust moments and the, um, but they're asking that question. Why should I even be here? And it, it's, there's been one consistent throughout all generations when it comes to why people stay in the church. The number one predictor of every church and every youth group one year from the day that they get there to being there one year later on that same day is sound biblical teaching. It's not great worship. Great worship's really important. It's high up there. It's almost people's non-negotiables. People can sit through Peter, Paul, and Mary on guitar if they're getting solid, sound biblical teaching. And they might put up with C- minus teaching if you've got an amazing worship team and you go, okay, what is what it is? as long as it's biblical and it's sound. It might not be super engaging, but you might have great community there, and you go, well, this is good enough for us. That's great. But if it's not sound, and it has no presence by which it's biblically based, there's nothing, your childcare can't be good enough, your youth group can't be good enough, and that's the same for inside of our youth groups. A lot of times I think we spend about 40 or 50 hours figuring out next week's game, and then we throw open the Bible and we go like, oh man, Hey, what's that one analogy I heard the other day about something? And we'll talk about it a lot tonight because Timothy just, he just chases this. Sound biblical teaching, understanding the questions that people are asking here. And this is what Paul does at Marcel, right? He goes, y'all are full of idols. Your culture's full of idols. And then the second thing that he does, after pointing out that they're idolatrous people in his own way, he says, what does this statue mean? Then he points at their idols and he shows the people where the idol lacks. This is kind of the second step for us in youth ministry. First, make them understand that you're a religious person. I don't care who you are, you're religious. Everybody's religious. That's like step one of all of our youth ministries. When I teach at any camp ever, I'm teaching at um, in Atascadero this weekend. Number one thing, you're all religious. O origin... Um, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. How you answer those four questions, which everyone does, is your religion. Where did you come from? What is right and what is wrong? What is, uh, what is, the, what, what is the reason you're here and where are you going when you die? Every worldview has an answer to that question, and that's your religion, right? Jesus people answer it this way. I came from, I was established in Christ before the foundation of the world. I was born, though, in a moment. I was given a soul. My soul was given a, a body. I was created in that moment. I was, I was conceived, right? What is good is what's founded in the character of Jesus, and what's wrong is what goes against that. Uh, what the, my life is, the Westminster Catechism says, I am here to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and ultimately I'm gonna go be with him forever where there's no more pain and no more tears. I have a cohesive worldview. Everyone's got one. Paul walks up to the people in the Areopagus and he says, what is your worldview? I know you all have one, he says. Which one's yours? And theirs was, bro, we're throwing worship 
up into the skies like you would throw noodles at a wall and just see what sticks. We've made idols for this and that. And what Paul ends up telling them is like, do you realize how innate worship is for you? Why, why not just stop? Why is it so intrinsic for you to want to worship and glorify something? I can tell you why. Because this statue over here, it says to the unknown God, I know him. I know the unknown God, the invisible, timeless, spaceless, immaterial one. I know the one who separated day from light. I know the one who came back from the dead and has, has promises for you too. And that's kind of that, that system by which I think it's, we can best engage Gen Z. You are religious, but it's failing you, isn't it? Timothy Keller asks a question at the beginning of one of his sermons. He does, I think he does a, he's actually invited to a Google talk. And he said the number one question he has for this next generation is, what if you're not as free as you think you are? And it's like one of those just like permeating deep questions. And it so offends the senses of Gen Z because all they think about is, I'm gonna do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and yet they're killing themselves at a clip that is 75% higher than their predecessors of 10 years ago. Why? You're supposed to be freer. You're supposed to be further from institutionalized religion. You're supposed to be more engaged with community around you. You're supposed to be more connected to the other people. Why are you more depressed? Why are you the, 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 the generation that is the most in, in, engaged with ideas of anxiety and suicide and depression, these things? It's not because our great-grandfathers didn't know what that was called. It's not the case. It's because technology and culture has made great boasts and has delivered on none of them. See, when, you're, when your grandpa was alone, he expected to be lonely. It's a lot more confusing when you're in the room full of people with 3,000 friends on Instagram and you feel alone. That's real confusing. And the noise of our culture, we can just keep playing the white noise over and over again. We never have to stop and think about the bigger questions of life. And so we've dropped into a state of just absolute insanity as a culture. The cool thing is, as youth workers, you have an answer. But if we look too much like the culture around us, instead of saying, you worship this idol, don't you? And it's not working, is it? That's my favorite question to ask a kid. How's this working? What justifies your, what justifies your reason for consuming air that some other organism could consume? Why would you be so selfish to do that? What's your reason for being here? Well, I just think it's to be happy. Your whole life's goal is to be happy. How's that going? Like you wake up in the morning and your motivation and your marching orders from your own brain is to be happy and you can't even do that. Is that scary? You've dedicated your whole life to fix that problem and you can't do it. The definition of insanity is repeating the same action and expecting a different result and you wake up every day trying to be happy and you're miserable. <laughs> I think, look, I think you should see what this Jesus thing is all about. Because I know a lot of people have a lot less stuff than you do, a lot fewer friends than you do who are a lot happier than you are. Not that God promises happiness, but he does promise meaning bigger than to be happy. Come on. What are you doing? The unknown God? This is what you worship? You want to be happy. You don't really want to be happy. You want to have meaning. Meaning brings happiness. Purpose brings happiness. Right? It's like Thanksgiving every year. Every year, my parents would go, we're going to go hand out turkeys for Thanksgiving. I don't want to. I don't want to. 
Because if you ask me, what do I most want to do on Thanksgiving morning? I want to sit. I want to play a game of football with my friends. I want to watch football on TV. I want to eat myself into a comatose state. I want to go to sleep. And I want to wake up and I want to decorate a Christmas tree. And I would finish handing out those thing, those turkeys. And every year, I loved Thanksgiving better. Because I had meaning. I had purpose. I was doing something and it wasn't just self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, self-care is the great deception of this generation. If you slow down enough, if you focus on yourself enough, if you buy yourself a nice, en- enough nice things, the reason we bought it initially is we watched the previous generations running themselves amok, running themselves crazy. But there's a firm line and a strong gap between not being unhealthy with saying yes to everything and being sloth-filled with acedia and self-indulgence. As the great theologian Taylor Swift once said, I'm the problem, it's me. So the more that we can engage that, and the more that we can go, you're religious, here's what you believe in, how is that going? We can insert that in almost all of our conversations, all of our talks, when we talk about money, when we talk about friends, when we talk about idolatry of friendship, hey, you, every day you wake up and you wonder, what does the girl next to you think about your hair today? You wonder who's gonna compliment you on stuff. You keep buying newer and newer things. You post more and more increasingly provocative photos so you can get that many more likes and, and you're increasing and it's getting better. And you know what? I'll bet someday you're gonna post a photo on there and it's gonna get 2,000 likes. And I want you to picture it the way that you're gonna think after that. I think you can already do it. Go there and that night, do you feel better about yourself? What's the calling card for the next morning after that? 2,500. What about after that? You see the endless rat race? It's Jesus walking to the woman, the good Samaritan, the, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. You keep coming and drawing from this well every day, but every morning you gotta keep coming back to it. What if there was such thing as water that would make you never thirsty again. He's doing, he's, he's, he's doing Pauline Mars Hill evangelism right there. You have slept with, you have had five husbands, you live with a man now who's not your husband because you keep told, telling yourself, if I find the right guy, if I have the right relationship, then I'll be fulfilled. And yet here you are in the heat of the day coming and drawing water. Is it working? Jesus asked the question of prudence. The father asked the questions of prudence to the Israelites. Paul asked the question of prudence to the people at the Areopagus. Is it working? Your philosophies are great. Your epistemology is right on track. Is it working or do you feel hollow and empty?